Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. So a new year and likely old themes as Boris Johnson faces the Commons at a later than usual Prime Minister's questions today, fresh from his first Cabinet meeting of 2022. The key debate, whether his gamble that the UK can ride out another Covid wave without tighter restrictions will pay off. Johnson is backing longer Plan B curbs as infections surge and warning that it will be a difficult few weeks for the NHS. One person who won't be there to challenge his plans is Keir Starmer. He's tested positive for coronavirus. The same thing happened to the Labour leader shortly before PMQs back in October. Well, meanwhile, Brexit risks potentially overshadowing even the pandemic this year. Although one year into going it alone, British civil servants have been told now to avoid the word altogether. The country is having a pang, perhaps a buyer's remorse, though. A survey by Delta Poll published this week found that 10% of Brexit voters think that it's been a success. 67% of the Leave cohort reckoning that it will eventually come good. The question is whether John can keep control of the political beast that he helped to unleash and deliver on it. Well, let's discuss that with uh, Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and Chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee. He voted against uh, the Plan B restrictions. Tobias, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the show again. Now, uh, the Prime Minister is is adamant there will be no new restrictions, but he's also uh, talking up strongly worries about the, the NHS. Do you think he's got? Do you think he's got the balance right? Yes, I mean, a very difficult call uh, to make as the world actually endures uh, another mutation of the pandemic. And I think it was right that the prime minister focused on not just looking after the health of the nation, but there's other aspects that any leader must consider beyond what the health uh, medical advisors are suggesting. We need to look at the economy. We need to look at the impact on education. You need to look at the mental health of the nation as well. All these factors need to be put together. And I think it was the right, though difficult decision to say, let's stay the course. Also bearing in mind that we had uh, one uh, eye on South Africa on what was happening there. They are, of course, head of the game. We saw that whilst this came about very, very quickly, it also started to dissipate very, very fast. Yes, it spread very, very, very uh, you know, swiftly indeed. But uh, the variant itself meant that uh, uh, it actually was disappearing uh, much, much sooner than, than perhaps, uh, you know, the, the cases with the Delta variant. And so I think the Prime Minister made the right call uh, in December. OK, but surely he had just had no choice. Plan B measures due to expire on the 26th of January. Could he actually get any new restrictions passed, given the huge rebellion we saw just before Christmas? Yes, that's exactly right. Parliament is doing its role of scrutinising the data and looking at the modelling itself. And that's what we were considering, too. 
And I think we actually help participate in the debate. No government in the world has ever had to endure this in this modern setting. And therefore, it is a massive, massive learning curve. And I stress, it's the importance of judging all those factors, not just making sure our economy can keep going, bearing in mind, weighing up those risks. But also there's something important here, which is the consent of the nation of making sure you keep the will of the people uh, together. And if you introduce too many restrictions that people don't necessarily understand or agree with, it can be very, very difficult then to implement and indeed get us out of the, the pandemic itself. You voted against uh, COVID passes when they came before Parliament last month. Would you like to see that that measure uh, reversed at the end of this month, uh, perhaps along with the other the other two restrictions that you know include the mask wearing? So uh, I represent Bournemouth, a big hospitality uh, industry. There, there wasn't a logic. You know, when you are in an enduring emergency and legislation is passed, that's not an excuse to simply sort of you know fast track leg- legislation through. In this case, there's vaccine passports. A lateral flow test could get you into a big venue or a nightclub, but also showing one of your vaccination certificates showing you only had two jabs. Now, we know from the data that if you've, if you've had all three jabs, then you're less likely you know, to, to gain um, the, the Omicron variant itself. So the actual detail itself didn't make sense. That's why I voted uh, against that. So absolutely, we need to have good uh, legislation that comes through. That's the job of Parliament to mm. scrutinise and make sure we've got it right. OK, what happens if, as children go back to school, uh, and we've discovered this in many other um, industries, you've got the economy open, but actually you know, a million people home self-isolating because of COVID. Yes, we're cutting down the number of days you have to self-isolate and testing is being brought in, but you know, then it's just you know, open for business in name only. Yeah, and that's the difficult decisions that the governments need to make. My concern is that there's been this attitude, oh, one last push, let's get us through Christmas and to the new year, and then we'll be be out and, and, and we'll, we'll be through the pandemic. You know, this pandemic has been with us for a couple of years. I suspect it's going to be around for a couple more years as well. If only 40% of the world is vaccinated, there's plenty of scope, I'm afraid, for another mutation to actually come through. So our vaccinations are working. But we need to be thinking long term. We need to make sure that we actually get uh, as many people as vaccinated as possible. We need to improve our logistical supply chains to make sure that we have the actual lateral flow tests there and and available. Only then can we then make sure that in six months time, should something else happen, we're better prepared for that eventuality. Do you think devolution has proved a bit of a, a mess when it comes to COVID restrictions? You've got COVID passes for different things in Scotland. You've got limits on pub visits in Wales. There's a long list of things which are different uh, across the, uh, the the borders. Has, has the situation been uh, uh, rather chaotic? Well, devolution is part of, of who we are you know, as a nation with the uh, responsibilities, you know, devolved down to those various um, uh, parliaments and, and governments and so forth. We can't undo that. But you're right to say that it does make, you know, can make a confusing uh, picture, given you can be very close to one side of the border. I think many people, you know, did a, a journey on New Year's Eve to, you know, to go south in order to be able to celebrate because of the restrictions placed into Scotland itself. Again, it's the clarity of communication, making sure I'd like to see greater cooperation between uh, the regions. But, of course, different regions are indeed affected in different ways. So there is a a positive side to this, to making sure that if there is a situation in Northern Ireland, for example, they're able to deal with that 
to, to some degree on their own uh, levels rather than actually affecting the rest of England. Or indeed, you know, as we saw in the uh, outbreak, the very first outbreaks, we actually different, had different uh, you know, tierings in different parts of the countries because that's the nature of the pandemic that we're actually trying to tackle. Okay, moving on to another subject, Ukraine. There are significant geopolitical threats facing the globe this year. Can anything be done to stop Russia from invading Ukraine? I think that ship has actually sailed. I was sorry that we did not do more. Uh, We need to recognise that Russia is now calling the shots here. They've amassed a huge amount of of, of troop uh, capabilities there, not just infantry, which is a statement in its own effect, but when you start put moving your special forces in, your hospital units, that suggests that you're actually anticipating an, an engagement. Now, they uh, follow the orthodox calendar, so I wouldn't anticipate any uh, invasion until uh, their new year, which is another week uh, away. Um, but ultimately, uh, we can threaten sanctions and so forth. Russia has, is taking full advantage of the West becoming risk-averse. We are too timid. We're divided in our approach. We have no full Russia, Russia strategy. And Russia is playing on this because it's able to uh, you know, uh, change the uh, play politics with its oil and gas and so forth. We need to reunite. The, the, the Russia is recognizing how weak mm. we've become. So you have no faith in President Biden in the US, who's been making phone calls to the UK, Ukrainian prime minister, reassuring him of US support. No faith in President Biden in the face of Vladimir Putin. It's not necessarily no faith in President Biden. There's no faith in the West uh, as a whole. Uh, we are, NATO itself But is, the backstop for NATO is the United States. Yes, you're absolutely right uh, on that. And I'm afraid once the decision was made not to, to bolster Ukraine, not to support this democracy, it was pleading for extra arms. It was pleading for uh, support. We've chosen not to do that. Russia has a uh, determination to, uh, I think, uh, support any Russian-speaking um, uh, diasporas right across Eastern Europe. It sees Eastern Ukraine, as, uh, indeed much of Ukraine, as part of their interest. And when they see that the United States and indeed the rest of Europe aren't interested in, in supporting them with any hard power, then they will take advantage of that. And I, I stress the point, this is important to, to bring bloke listeners, that um, any sanctions that are put in place will harm Eastern European countries as much as it would Russia as well. And Russia is, again, fully aware of that. If we want to be, uh, show that the West is, is strong in supporting democracies, we have to rethink our, our support for Ukraine. On the subject of Russia, stay, uh, staying with that, how how should we play relations with, with Moscow? The continent is now effectively, less so the UK, but certainly the rest of Europe is completely energy dependent uh, on Russia. H- how do we square that circle? How do we uh, keep them at arm's length uh, whilst also having that relationship? Yeah, that is the difficulty. Uh, if you are um, subservient to your, your needs from, from an energy perspective, then it's very difficult if you just stand up to Russia. And Russia plays on that. So you need a longer-term strategy to perhaps um, sort of wean yourself off a reliance of Russia itself, recognising that what it wants to do. We also need, a, I think, a more cognitive approach to Russia. How did we end up uh, after the Cold War, where Russia was opening up and looking towards the West, that now it is becoming ever closer to China? If this is China's century, so to speak, they're going to grow economically, militarily, technologically, and so forth. It's going to be much tougher to deal with that big geopolitical challenge if Russia then is is part of that enclave. 
we should be looking in some ways to ease the pressure off Russia so they turn 180 degrees. That's not going to happen overnight. It probably won't happen while Putin is leader. But ultimately, we need to give Russia a way out. Otherwise, I say, you know, what happens over the next four or five years uh, in us determining our relationship with Russia and indeed yeah. China will probably sow the seeds as to how the next four or five decades will play out. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's uh, talk a little bit about other stories making news in the world of politics. Well, Scotland's First Minister is facing questions after the country hit record COVID case numbers. A further 17,259 infections were reported yesterday following a record high of more than 20,000 on Monday. But Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross has criticised Scotland's strict self-isolation rules and is calling for them to be eased as worker absentees uh, pile up. Uh, Nicola Surgeon is giving an update to a special virtual sitting of Parliament today. Well, it's not just Brexit and the pandemic presenting a challenge this year. UK households are starting to feel the cost of living crunch. More than four in five people have seen their living costs increase in the past few months. According to a survey from TSB, 82% of respondents have seen grocery and energy bills and day-to-day essentials go up in price. As a result, nearly a quarter have dipped into savings and more than a third have now cut back on spending on non-essential items. Well, Labour is accusing the Ministry of Defence of wasting £13 billion of taxpayer money. The party used independent data to identify 67 cases of costs being mismanaged since 2010. Examples include cancelled contracts and programmes that went over budget. The MOD told the BBC that it had, to, it had to take tough decisions to ensure the country was fully equipped to face threats. Okay, those are a few of the news items in the world of politics today. Now, hopefully you enjoyed wonderful food over the festive period, but it is sadly a luxury that not everyone has. Joining us now is Lindsay Boswell, who is chief executive of Fair Share, which is the biggest food charity in the UK. They fight hunger and food waste. Welcome to the programme, Lindsay. Thank you for coming on. I wanted to talk to you because before Christmas, you called this festive season terrifying. You were worried about the supplies that you get from some pretty big firms. What was Christmas like for you at Fair Share, for the schools, the families, the charities that you serve? Thank you for having me on the programme. Um, actually, Chris- Christmas was, was much more stable than we were, we were anticipating and expecting. Um, and, and the reason I say that is just a bit of context. Is So what Fair Share does is we work with the food industry um, recognizing that globally, one third of all food that is produced by um, uh, by humankind is goes to waste, mm. and we exist to be able to redistribute good quality, in date, fit for human consumption surplus food in the United Kingdom to get it to frontline charities who then provide a safety net for people who are vulnerable. And many of those, um, uh, you know, we went into the Christmas period knowing that the demand for the for fair share food uh, amongst those charities. And we support um, between 10,000 and 11,000 of them on an annual basis. We're finding that uh, 
the demand for food was greater than the the, the amount of surplus that we were able to supply. And, and the terrifying bit of that was because what we were seeing was the, um, you know, and you guys have covered this as well, the disruptions to the supply chain mm-hmm. um, uh, and the logistics industry with HGV driver shortages. Uh, and now we're seeing people off work with Omnicom um, it, within the supply chain. Uh, that was meaning that um, we weren't getting as hold of as much surplus food as we would like to get hold of. So, uh, that's a- sorry, that's quite a long-winded answer to saying, <laughs> actually, uh, as it turns out, the Christmas period was... Um, uh, you know, was uh, less terrifying um, than we we're expecting. Mm. And t- tell us how things are like on the on the demand side. Uh, people in in need of of food. Obviously, we had the reversal to the uh, universal credit uplift in in the autumn. And lots of people facing a lot of rising prices at the moment. How how, is, how has the picture yeah. changed compared to last year? I mean, and, I mean, and, and everybody and the government's own statistics themselves, um, you know, back this up. Is you know, they are we are expecting to see more people, more families, um, more individuals uh, struggling to feed themselves. Uh, and the focus quite often is 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 on um, specifically around the benefit system and um, uh, you know the, and the. And there's been lots and lots of column inches around the uh, around the twenty pound uh, uplift on universal yes. credit and the removal of that. However, actually, what goes on in our communities around us is a lot more nuanced and subtle than that. Um, so many of the organisations that we're supplying foods to are tackling social ills that are not specifically about um, I can't get enough food. So the you know, the most common recurring issue right across the, uh, many of the charities that we work with is mental health issues. Um, mm. We work with a large number of amazing frontline organizations that are using food to connect elderly, isolated people who feel imprisoned in their own homes, and they use that food as a way of connecting them um, with other people so they can have a conversation, they can um, uh, they can get some social interaction yeah. uh, and so on. And so uh, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's um, uh, drug, alcohol, dependency, uh, and yes. so on and so on, all of those manifest themselves in hunger eventually. Yes, and, and I think that that's, that's a very interesting way that you, put, you, you talk about it because I think there is a tendency to talk about food poverty or energy poverty in isolation and poverty of, of various different kinds without sort of connecting it together. So I think that's very interesting. Well, in terms of connection, you work, as I say, with some very big companies like Tesco, like Coca-Cola, like the Manchester United Foundation. What's your view in terms of the food supply system then? Is it actually getting more efficient in terms of de- dealing with food waste that then you give to these charities, you know, with this very good end in mind. Are we getting any better at, at not having food waste? We've just had COP26 talking about the damage to the environment of, of wasteful food production. Yeah, well, well actually, sadly, and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm a big, big fan of, 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 of everything that was driven there at COP26, but actually they weren't talking about yes, food waste. not enough. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and we think that was a real sort of missed opportunity, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, the the food industry, the food system in the UK, uh, is probably one of the most efficient um, and ruthlessly effective uh, at at, um, at supply and demand uh, on the planet. However, it is an absolute consequence of supply and demand that there are always going to be surpluses. 
because for there not to be surpluses, then we would, as consumers, need to just accept the fact that, well, occasionally they're not going to have what I want. And I'll, and I'll either need to change um, what I buy and make a different supper tonight, or, or I will need to, um, uh, or I'll need to, 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 uh, to not go to my Tesco and I'll go to my Sainsbury's instead because they may well have it. And actually, one of the things that we've seen you know, with the disruptions, uh, whether it's Brexit, whether it's COVID, uh, or whether it's the HGV side, is that as actually as a society, we've begun to get used to the fact that mm, there was a gap on the shelves. Whereas two years ago, that was completely unheard of. And, 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 and um, you know, and, and the food industry and particularly the supermarkets uh, mm. would not tolerate uh, not being able to meet demand. So wherever you've got supply and demand, you're going to get surpluses. And actually, the larger amount of the surplus food is the further back you go in the food system. So if you start with a farmer's field, uh, it is at the growing stage because we don't know whether we're going to have a, you know, we've just had an unbelievably mild um, uh, uh, period in December, mm-hmm. the warmest new year the, uh, on record. Uh, and, and so crops and products under, under glass and out in the fields will be growing faster than they were anticipated to be done. And, um, uh, and those fluctuations in weather, fluctuations in our habits, now, we seem to have trebled the number of avocados that we demand to be able to eat. Um, and, and supply and demand then has, has to respond to that. So it's the complexity of the supply and demand that generates the surplus. Mm. Is it getting better in the UK? Absolutely, because there's a real focus on it. And um, uh, you know, we like to think fair share has played a role within that. But I think actually as consumers, we're all, you know, we're all yeah. pointing the so, finger so, at so. our supermarkets and saying we, we want to see less waste. So some, um, some some good news on that. Some good news on that front. There must be huge variations in in the surpluses of what you get and, and when you get it and how much you get. How, how difficult operationally is is that for you to manage? Well, it's it, it, it's hugely complicated, um, and because when there is a surplus, it will tend to be in a very very large volume at a, at a one particular moment in time. You in and so, you know. Thinking back just to um, you know within within 2021, where you know we received a phone call from um, a, you know a restaurant chain that focuses on uh, on baked potatoes, and saying, "Listen, we've got some spare baked potatoes for you. Um, would you like them?" And we went, "Absolutely, that's a real staple. You know, you can build a meal around a baked potato. So, yes, please bring them on." Said, "Well, we've got a thousand tons of baked potatoes," <laughs> and the way that Fair Share works is we are a network of regional charities across the four nations of the UK. And so if you go to if you go to Fair Share in the north of Scotland, it'll be Fair Share Grampian, which is a local uh, Aberdeen-based charity that is then redistributing across the Highlands and Islands. Uh, and that allows us to have a the infrastructure to be able to deal with um, large, large volumes. And in that particular example, I'm really pleased to tell you that not a single baked potato went away. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.